Welcome to episode 196 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. I know I usually share a tip during this segment, but I recently returned from Disneyland and I'm still recovering from that trip with um, my three daughters and the niece and aunts and everybody. And it was a really good time. And I looked, I found out that our podcast guest last week, AC, was also there at the same time, looked all over for him and did not meet up. But um, if you were in Disneyland with the thousands and thousands of us <laughs> last mm-hmm. week, um, we hope that you're recovering well. Yeah, my last well, my only time I was at Disneyland in California, I got so sunburned, and as <laughs> you can tell from my pale skin, it was not good. And <laughs> and and the top of my head, I didn't have a hat on. It was terrible, and my skin started peeling on the top of my head. So I looked really, really weird. Oh no. Because you know I'm follically challenged, <laughs> and uh, and so it it was really not good, um, and I blame my wife for making me stand out there all afternoon. Yeah, and was, we and my kids who were you know watching the parade and doing all that stuff. Yeah, I think we got the one weekend in February when it wasn't pouring rain. But I did notice it makes a big difference how long you can stand in lines when it's not hot because I made it a lot longer than I have in the past when we've gone when it, it the sun was beating down and you were standing two hours in 90 degrees. It feels a whole lot worse than standing two hours in, you know, 60 degrees. Right. Exactly. I, I, I can't do that anymore. The 90 yep. degree, two hours standing there, I can't do it. No, no. So, I have something else to tell you, but later. Um, (laughs) So, um, who do we have on today? Yeah, so today we have Lynn Anapnet, and she is um, one of the, was a provider at Presence, is now more on the corporate side of Presence, and has a lot to tell us about some of those soft skills and just um, some of the things that she's learned in her career as a speech-language pathologist. Great. Let's hear from Lynn. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. Hey, we want to welcome Lynn to the podcast. Uh, Lynn, share a bit about your background and how you ended up in speech-language pathology. Yeah, happy to be here. I um, ended up in speech-language pathology 
probably similarly to many people who go to college and don't quite know what they're going to go for. And I actually remember looking through the course description books and the course on uh, language acquisition, uh, pediatric childhood language just sounded so intriguing to me that I, of course, had to sign right up for that class. And that one class was my hook. That was all I really needed to know I had found found my spot. I, I knew always I wanted to be a helper. I always said that from a young age, but didn't know what that meant. And once I found uh, courses that really had me passionate and motivated and wanting to learn more, I knew I had found my niche. Um, I went to school at Miami University of Ohio and I found that school, actually my grandfather went there and he uh, didn't finish because I think he went into uh, a war at the time. And, um, but I had, that's how I knew of the university and it was uh, just far enough from my parents and all of that, but it was still in state and I thought, let's go check that out. So that's what led me there. And then um, within my freshman year, I had found speech pathology. And they have a very strong program to, uh, as well. So They do. They do. I was really lucky to participate in in things uh, outside of the coursework too and have some really great mentors and leaders with that within the department there and the educational leadership department was very strong as well. Um, so very, very strong program there. Yeah. And from there, you went to UC, is that right? So, yeah. So I started my, I did my undergrad and graduate school at Miami University and started working uh, in primarily Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And I like to think of myself as a lifelong learner. So at that point, I thought I had more questions. I wanted to, to know more even and maybe consider academia and I did a lot of uh, doctoral coursework at the University yes. of Cincinnati as well. Yeah. And that that's still floating. I still say, um, being all but dissertation, I will finish that at some point. But um, my life took another path along the way as well. Do it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I need that. I, I appreciate that. Once you stop, it's hard to pick it back up, but I will. Yeah. It is. For sure. Hopefully on a teletherapy uh, topic. Topic. Yeah. In the end, as you know, we need more research in this area. We need yep. more people out there. Absolutely. More even on the qualitative aspects, I think, will be really, really neat. Um, mm-hmm. Very much so. And so after grad school, and I know you were at uh, Cincinnati Children's, uh, which is great. We do. I'm at uh, Akron Children's a couple of days a week. And we do a lot of collaboration with Cincinnati Children's. Um, so I, I've very uh, well respected uh, hospital. I certainly respect everything they're doing there. They've been doing telepractice for a long time, from what I understand. You know, that makes sense. I When I was there, there was some of the leadership team just starting to explore it because we had tremendous wait lists for students, right. for children and to, to get services. So I, I didn't know how large that program has grown. I, I haven't heard that, but that makes sense because that area draws 
you know, really far. It's a really well-respected program at Cincinnati and um, lots of kiddos needing services there. So, yeah, I can see that. And I think I read that they have, they employ more SLPs than any hospital in the country or something like that. It's amazing. I think so. Yeah. Back then we would, we were the largest pediatric SLP uh, provider in the country. Yeah. That's amazing. And and they're serving not only Cincinnati, but Kentucky and West Virginia and pulling in from all all areas, probably Indiana as well, based on where, yeah. they're, where they're sitting. Yep. Lots of, lots of branches and outpatient centers have expanded from there. Yeah, that's exciting. So how, how did you find telepractice? How did that come about? Yeah, so I had um, worked in, at one point, a variety of different schools, primarily independent contractor work or subcontracting kind of positions. And I also, at that point in my life, was ready to have children. And um, pretty soon after my firstborn uh, was born, I just thought, I'm not quite ready to go back, but I'm also not quite ready to not uh, keep continue working and continue my own career. And so I uh, found a position uh, as a teletherapist and started small and thought I would keep it smaller for a while, but I found it to be such a good fit for my family that I really ended up taking on more and more hours and thought, wow, I can do this actually. This is working just fine. I'm able to still be the mom that I want to be. And um, still develop my own career and just took took off. And the industry, that was about 2015 when I started in teletherapy. Mm-hmm. And I think at one point, you know, I held six state licensees there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, because I I was just, it was so, so interesting to me to to work with such a variety of different schools yeah. and settings and students, and then still be able to meet my own family's needs. So I, I was thrilled with the fit. And I do like to say what kept me in teletherapy this long yeah. was actually the effectiveness of it. And the fact mm. that my students were incredibly motivated and engaged in this setting. It took me some time to actually come to terms with that because <laughs> I, I'm not a big tech person, to be honest. I, um, you know, I really try to balance screen time and all those things with with my children. But I realized in teletherapy, oh, it's still about me and my right. skills as a therapist, and so I I could be you know, an even better therapist in many ways I found for students because they were so motivated and engaged in this setting. So that's what kept me here. And that's, that's definitely what I've seen is is how in many situations that it can be a better fit for a lot of patients, you know, right. kids and adults. Yeah, from distance. I had um, a student recently that was medically fragile and the parent was asking for staff that's around the student to wear masks. And I just told her, I was like, if that's what you are needing, it will be better for him 
to be seen over telepractice than in person because he can't get any of those facial cues of how to say all these sounds and and seeing his facial cues is a problem too with him wearing a mask but we remove that barrier when we do it online absolutely yeah that's such a great example mm-hmm. yeah many students i found too initially in my career that was in teletherapy a lot of uh, virtual schools I worked with. And that mm-hmm. that was a really neat experience because you're somewhat like you're in the home, but you're not in, right. physically in the home. And so I, I really liked that carryover aspect of being able to integrate caregivers and train them in the sessions and see what that home environment was like and how I could support the, there too. So um and and they chose those settings for, you know, their own students for such a variety of reasons that was right. really interesting to me. And, you know, being respectful of their educational decisions and knowing those students still deserved the best care for their services um, was so important for the virtual students, especially. Yeah. And I think because a lot of times um, I feel like this changed a little bit with COVID. I feel like there were more reasons that parents were keeping their kids home, but at that point, you know, before COVID, it was a lot of those families who were interested in being more involved in their child's education that were choosing virtual school, schools or homeschooling supported by virtual schools kinds of things. So a lot of times you would get parents who were wanted to be there in the sessions and be very involved. And that's really exciting to see. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then, of course, when COVID comes along and parents are having to <laughs> And there do... were a lot of reasons. A lot of us were reluctant homeschoolers, yes. <laughs> me included. I had a kindergartner the year of COVID, and that was difficult. I was convinced that she was never going to learn how to read if it was up to me to do it. <laughs> Same. That was a hard time. That, you know, not just for the parents, but for all the teachers and therapists who were just right. into doing things virtually without the resources that we all have when we yeah. work for a teletherapy company like that. Yeah. That was a lot on parents, teachers, and therapists who, you know, were not expecting that route. Right. Right. And I think it was an adjustment for everybody, even when the for those of us that were working in telepractice before I had kids at home that I had only ever seen at school and parents that had never logged on their kid before and people's Internet not working and all of those things that we still had to go through, even though as far as the therapy part, I was ready to jump in. And I think it did challenge it. We were talking before we started uh, about those soft skills of trying to model that. And and those were situations that were quite acute where trying to, you know, massage uh, the parents along. And when they were, you know, so overwhelmed with COVID and maybe mm-hmm. three kids online, you know, getting their classroom instruction. And then they also needed, you know, speech services and having to set that up and really trying to help them uh, understand that it's all going to be okay and we'll make it work. Yeah, that was really a time for lessons and flexibility and adaptability because more often than not, the situations weren't ideal and it, it really does take a lot to just be able to adapt on the fly, flex on things that you know is going to fit that student and the family better um, and 
you know, think about the things that aren't being said sometimes too. And exactly. And, and so as what do you think uh, in terms of how do we improve the services that we are providing um, using those soft skills that, you know, you, when people are being trained, you kind of assume they develop those, you know, the, but, you know, we all have different personalities and we all maybe want to help because we chose this field, but not everyone is created equal in terms of the, the skills they have in those areas of, of, of soft skills and, and really trying to model that for the children we're working with, but also the parents and, and other professionals that we're having to impress and and work with uh, and not be in the building with them often. Absolutely. I think in teletherapy, yes, your your clinical skills are still important in the therapy room, but more of your work is judged or appreciated outside of that therapy session. It's it's all the things um, that maybe are less explicit. So your professionalism and IEP meetings, which we all know can be hard to navigate in person, then you add a virtual aspect on top of that. And you're you're navigating those relationships that you don't have a lot of depth to because of the virtual aspect and how important, you know, really strong communication is also, uh, whether that is virtually in a verbal setting or in written communication, you tend to just have so much more asynchronous written communication. In right. Too. Yeah. You can't just pop into the teacher's room down the hall and ask them, you know, how's your student doing in the classroom kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. You miss that day-to-day aspect of the water cooler and the, the yeah. room and the conversations that just happen on the fly like that. So it, it is something I really think, um, we need to be really explicit about when you become a teletherapist that these mm-hmm. things are truly, really important to your success and, you know, the need to kind of over communicate and uh, be flexible and know, know certain different types of communication at different times. Uh, it's really, really important to your success in this setting. So do you feel like that's something that people kind of either like have or they don't have, or is it something that can be taught? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's certainly something that can be taught. I do. I think most people tend to really proactively seek out improving their clinical skills because mm-hmm. we have continuing ed and workshops and you know strong evidence based research and resources, and that seems a little more accessible. But I have seen a trend in general over the years with more continuing ed opportunities on these, you know, so-called soft skills or interpersonal skills, which I like to think of as essential skills. So I see that as becoming more and more common just in general, not in teletherapy. Um, I know it's something I've thought more and more about of, you know, embedding, like I said, more explicit training when you're onboarding. Mm -hmm on those topics. And I know, Kim, I think you were at ASHA this year. And I noticed more and more topics as well, especially like in supervision on these topics and sitting in and hearing those as well of just what the younger students and the younger generations, um, 
you know, just it's a different time. And so we're having more and more explicit for that population as well. And especially the groups that did schooling during COVID, they had less experience (laughs) with those types of interactions. So it definitely is something that should be taught and can be taught, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some, I, there was a presentation that was like specifically on soft skills with telepractice. And so I think it is something more people are looking at. Oh, nice. I don't know if I got to that one. It's all about, yeah, emotional intelligence is, you know, a big part of that. And I've certainly worked with some people. Kim knows a couple that I worked with at Utah State that didn't have (laughs) any, well, not one ounce of emotional intelligence. (laughs) And that makes it hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's really something, too, that's like a transferable skill. So, mm-hmm. yes, as therapists, right. we all need that. But also just as any working professional in a remote environment, it's a, it's a really important skill set in this day and age. And time and time again in my positions of, you know, clinical leadership, I've that message has just came back to me for better and worse of um, how important this truly is to a teletherapist's success. You know, the timeliness and organization aspects speak so much about the the provider's quality of care and um all all those things like I said outside of the therapy room that um say things about us. Yeah. I think um another concern I've had with telepractice is that sometimes like every therapist is an island kind of a little bit. And is there like things that you've seen that are like how you can know whether a therapist is doing well with it or not, or that communication's not happening. And I just feel like it is a little bit harder in general to have that like oversight as a, you know, a clinical manager or someone who's owning a small private practice and having others work under them. What some of those like signs that you can look for of someone being good at that or when things aren't going well? No, that's a great question, Kim. So I've approached clinical quality from such a variety of lenses, I've probably completed, I don't know, thousands of observations, actually direct observations of clinical sessions along the way. And that doesn't tend to to really show you these skills. Like, you know, a therapist right. is really good in the therapy room and have really strong clinical skills with a student. And then I meet with them afterwards and talk about the session. And that's where you start to really see these skills emerge when they're talking about their interactions with colleagues and interprofessional collaboration or lack of it. Um, Mm -hmm. You also see it during times of um, emails. So typically, you know, if they reach out to me for support in a really abrupt tone or flip (laughs) out on the other side, a novel, you know, you know that that's likely the communication that other people are getting too, and um, can maybe need some some softening around the edges. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in the you know, I think that um, extra time it takes to just step back and reflect on messages, how they're going to be interpreted, is is a really important aspect of how we can kind of be self-aware in this setting. It just takes that extra time to say, how might the school administrator interpret this email that, right? or how might the parent interpret this? Um, And then I think 
Kim, just like you said, that island that you can feel like in teletherapy is so tremendously important too, because to really do well, you do need to take time and not feel like an island. And that means you need to know the culture of the district that you're serving what and really know their preferences on communication, their preferences on timelines and organization, the style that they expect IEPs to be written in. Um, that it, it's really important that we don't feel like we're on an island. And, you know, you have to really make that effort to feel like I am part of a team here, even though I'm not mm-hmm. physically there, I'm still a part of that school's team. Yeah. And sometimes that um, that support person who is in the room in your therapy sessions every day is one of the most like important contacts that you can make Absolutely. and finding good ways to communicate with them. And even like, I don't know, I've had it work well that if a student doesn't show up instead of being like, okay, well, I'll log off by taking that time to, you know, discuss how things are going, uh, how the schedule's working, what's coming up in classrooms and get some, some of that like it's kind of FaceTime without being FaceTime with those people that you are usually just, they're dropping off kids and they're picking up kids from the sessions. Yes, absolutely. That relationship can really strengthen the the ties with the district and mm-hmm. um, building trust there is really important to the, you know, not just to the student success, but how the district feels, feels that connection to you as the teletherapist right. too. Mm-hmm. Well, Lynn, I, d- I wanted to touch on uh, one other area while we have you is you, you've you made a shift uh, into the corporate world, uh, which a lot of SLPs maybe haven't considered that as a, as maybe a career path. Um, can you, you know, share how, how that came about and, and what advice maybe if someone's interested in being in sort of that side of things? Yeah, absolutely. So that for me um, came about just pretty naturally through, I think, you know, I'm I'm always aware that I'm showing up in every interaction that I have. I, it's a reflection of me, just like we've been talking about your emails, mm-hmm. you know, along the way, all those little things are reflections of, of us as professionals. And so um, I've always, you know, just tried to put my best foot forward in that aspect in all my interactions, whether PSPs or um, other leaders. And along the way, I just developed some of those relationships um, and mentors, like I said, I think, you know, finding people that you really respect in in the field and talking to them about their journeys and um barriers that you're experiencing and helping be solution oriented to any barriers you are experiencing, I think just goes a long way. Um, instead of coming in with a, um, you know, kind of complaint mentality, uh, when you sure. can come in with a, hey, this isn't working well. And, you know, here's some ideas I have. What do you think? Is this, you know, is, could we try something like this? I think that just goes a, a really long way in um, advancing, you know, how your professionalism um, and collaboration works in this setting. And um, things like, you know, when you see other therapists struggling, lending your advice and, yeah. you know, and doing that in the right way where you're not 
telling people authoritatively, you know, what to do, but helping them, you know, lead them into their own paths to discovery and, you know, things that you've learned along the way that you can shoot them those resources. I think, I think that just that, again, some of those soft skills, when you, you show those skills early on, um, those are leadership skills. Mm-hmm. And so um, really not shying away from challenging situations, I think is important. And then I think um, always when, when you do start to make a shift into a corporate position, you have to really stay grounded that the work still makes a difference. I think that was a yeah. fear for me that, oh, if I'm not working with students, I'm not going to make a difference. And in fact, I, I have found the opposite to be true. I'm certainly mm-hmm. you know, able to still make an impact and it's in a different way on a broader scale. Um, but I think that is just important to your own personal satisfaction along the way to to kind of keep that in mind and always stay grounded in the that that helper uh, mentality mm-hmm. that you're still you know making an impact on student and um, client success. Exactly. In what you've sort of described is sort of that growth mindset, and uh, and looking being you know solution oriented and how can we fix this and and let's work together and be collaborative you know those kinds of again soft skills but critical skills that if you're going to be if you're a clinician uh, working directly or in a corporate setting you have to still have those kinds of uh, you know perspectives yeah and i always encourage um I don't know if everyone needs this, but I do think kind of diversifying your own career in many ways as a clinician really just goes a long way. Like, um, I think it prevents burnout. Exactly. Yeah. That your long longevity, I think is possible when you are, you know, when you can have more opportunities to, to contribute in just different ways for yourself Mm -hmm. and, um, have a sense of community because that, like you said, Kim, before that island, you you can really mm-hmm. start to feel that when you see student after student after student, and you don't get as much adult interaction. So, right, you know, you really have to to step outside and think, how can I still get my own needs for community and my own career growth still met, um, yep. so that you don't burn out. Sometimes you have to start a podcast just so you can have <laughs> other adults to talk to. <laughs> Absolutely. Very true. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we, you know, we learn best with, with each other. I think I that's think so too. Really mm-hmm. too. Was there well, anything that was like really surprising as far as like skills that you needed when uh, you were making that jump from clinical to more corporate uh, side of being an SLP or anything that was really difficult with that? Oh, I love that question. I would say, I think one of the harder things is we're, as clinicians, we're used to giving feedback, right? We give positive reinforcement to our students all the time. But mm-hmm. I do see that that is harder for many people who switch to corporate world to give it to adults. Right. To, oh, yeah. to be able to give clear feedback to adults is a lot harder than it is to give that feedback to our students. So I think that is one of the hardest aspects probably of moving from a clinician role 
to a, a corporate role and um, being able to translate, you know, some of those skills around feedback and um, constructive criticism yeah. uh, into a, a different type with adults. Um, and then I think there are so many skills that are really trans transferable uh, right. as well, though. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like to say that we're kind of, I don't know, I like the word interaction specialist as another <laughs> name for a speech language pathologist. And I feel like a lot of that is transferable. But that's interesting that you said that because it is something that as SLPs working with kids that we're good at, but it is harder to do with adults. And even I've had a harder time doing it even with like the adult that's in the room with the child that it feels harder to do it with than the child themselves. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of that, I think, is, again, it does go back to some of these interpersonal skills because, you mm -hmm. know, we feel like we have less trust in this virtual setting to to have that comfortability to be able to give feedback. So really making sure we do, you know, have a relationship established always goes a long way when you you do need to give uh, feedback. And um, I, I like to tell the team here at Presence, the clinical success team. And when we think about like a customer service approach, Kim, we were talking about all the, the skills as therapists that we have that actually align with mm -hmm. customer service um, and just our, you know, the way we put students first, the way we um, put families first and how we can transfer those kinds of skills as well because of our strong communication and um, interpersonal understanding of relationships. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it is a benefit, though, to still have a, you know, a speech language pathologist or an occupational therapist in that role because they can know both sides of that as well. They can know it from the clinical side as well as the like, okay, how do we get schools to be interested in what we want to do and what we want to provide? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um, it's really important for for both sides, a, a school partner and our mm -hmm. therapists and really having both perspectives in mind. I I like to say more often than not, we we can meet both. We, you know, a, a good solution tends to meet both needs of our school partner and of our therapist as yeah. well. Awesome. Exactly. Well, Lynn, I'll be respectful of your time, so I don't want to keep you. How can uh, someone reach out to you uh, and maybe interact or ask questions? That is more than welcome. You probably, the easiest way is to find me on LinkedIn. You can go to the Presence website and uh, get directed from there to my LinkedIn profile or reach out to me just via email. It's my first name, last name, Lynn in Abnett at Presence.com. Wonderful. Right. Well, please come back and, and give us a, an update on how everything is going. I'd love to. It was great talking with you both. I want to thank Lynn for joining us on the podcast and raising and reminding us of a very important issue, and that is those soft skills. Some people may downplay those skills, but we all have been in situations where, whether it's a supervisor or a colleague who maybe just didn't have that way of building rapport and uh, understanding 
how their tone affected other people. So those soft skills we now know are critical skills. There's nothing soft or minor about them. So thank you, Lynn, for reminding us of the need for all of us to perfect those skills. You can check out Lynn on LinkedIn, as well as connecting with her through Presence. Uh, So go check out everything that Presence is doing and all the services that they are providing around the country. And thank you for joining us on this episode, if you don't mind. As you know, please leave us that five-star review. That helps us to definitely reach more people and uh, attract more listeners, which is what it's all about, right? And with that, until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.